I've got a quick question for you before we get started today. Were there any outstanding presentations at the last Master Brewers District meeting you attended? I bet there were. Well, we'd like to share those stories with listeners, but we need your help. Unless they attended that same district meeting, Master Brewers members, including me, will never know about these outstanding presentations unless they get uploaded to the Master Brewers District Presentations Archive. So next time you sit in on a really great presentation, ask your district officers if you can help them get the presentations uploaded. It's super easy. There's even a short how-to video link at the top of the archive. And if there's a presentation that you think we should highlight here on the show, shoot me a quick message. You can find me at community.mbaa.com. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Let's go! 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 Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Barley is, uh, is a very visceral product. You know, it's incredibly ancient, and there is a wonderful story to tell there. And the, the fun part has been watching uh, maltsters and brewers engaging in that dialogue for a couple of years now. Now what you have is this continuum of malt opportunities um, for brewers of all sizes to engage in, and it's just really exciting. That was a voice of my friend Susan Welsh, who is a recent past president of Master Brewers. You won't hear Susan on this episode, but you will hear one of her colleagues as we talk about craft malt, winter barley, AMBA's guidelines for all malt brewers, and more. Hi, my name is Dave Kusky. I'm with Proximity Malt. Hi, my name is Tim Matthews. I'm with the Canarchy Craft Brewery Collective. Before we get started, I just want to express some gratitude. Uh, Proximity Malt has been a sponsor of this show for more than a year now, which we really appreciate because we couldn't produce this show without financial support from sponsors like you. So thank you for that. It means a lot. Our pleasure. Next, I'll mention that this episode is totally unrelated to the sponsorship. Nobody from Proximity has ever pushed us to feature the company or anything like that. We're here today because I think there's an interesting story to tell that's related to a lot of the conversations Susan Welsh and I have had over the last decade about craft malt, about winter barley, about malting technology, and about some of the concepts Joe Hertrick has done such a good job of explaining here on the show. 
Um, and let's start with Joe because it's always good to start with Joe. If you go back to episodes 88 and 89, Joe explained how North American two-row barley evolved to take on six-row traits and why that's bad for all malt brewers. The American Malting Barley Association began publishing different specification targets for adjunct brewers versus all malt brewers back in 2012. We'll get into that as well as the recent updates soon. But for now, I'd like you to talk about how malting has evolved in recent years to better meet those all malt brewing targets. Because maltsters can't they can't just wait for the lengthy barley breeding cycle. They've got to make malt for craft brewers today. I would say the evolution there is really trying to work with with the best barley packages that are there or best barley varieties that are out there and available through the through the uh, through the AMBA program. And to say we really have to sort through what is available. There there have been very few rollouts in, in terms of this particular variety is is absolutely dedicated to craft. I know we had craft as a as a variety come through but that never really caught on i think the majority of of folks are looking at that deck and going what can we do internally what barley varieties can we pick and how can we put those through the process accordingly to get uh, the profiles at what the the craft brewer is looking for and you and you look at what those profiles are it's a it's a more muted enzyme package it's a lower protease package in total, lower lower total protein, lower soluble protein, lower free amino nitrogen, and that leads itself to, or lends itself to to a few varieties that are out there. I know Copeland has been one that's been been used and, and repeatedly used over the years here. But uh, uh, looking at that and going, what what you don't want to do is is a malster is to cut cut a barley variety short. And I believe Joe talks about that in uh, in some of his discussions there, and to say you know purposely under modifying a particular barley to hit a malt specification is never a good choice. There, you're much better finding a a variety that's more suited to the malting process, having careful control of the malting process, make sure that you do get uniform and, and uniform modification and breakdown, you know, let that barley become what it wants to become rather than what you want to make it become as artificially as a monster. Tim, how about from your perspective? The last 10 years have been uh, just a, a huge learning experience for brewers. In order for brewers to be part of this entire equation, brewers have had to learn how to even talk this language. It's not something that, is heavily, I mean, when I did my uh, brewing learning 15 plus years ago, it wasn't a big focus. We didn't know exactly what malting, uh, the intricacies of malting and how it varies based upon the variety. So it has been a huge education um, process in the last 10 years. And you could actually see it at AMBA in the last uh, five years where participation um, by craft brewers has grown immensely. The it, it's definitely a multiplayer game when it was um, definitely a few, just a few players uh, before. But that um, literacy of malt has uh, for brewers has been a huge, huge step in helping everybody engage this and getting to the point, uh, getting to these uh, uh, different. Uh, metrics of, of malt that are definitely more uh i guess 
conducive to the craft brewing all malt style. In the end, it doesn't help if brewers don't understand about modification, understand the uniformity, and understand um, the effect of excess or even um, the deficiency of amino acids. They don't understand that, and they can't look at their brewing process and, and their beer and actually determine an effect, cause and effect, then this goes nowhere. So that has been, you know, the advent of literacy of, of malt and barley malting and malt uh, in craft beer has definitely helped and it's been one of the most visible uh, um, events in the last couple of years. Talk about what it means to U.S. brewers now that domestic maltsters are shortening the development pipeline by exploring European genome barley varieties. Well, if anything, it's getting rid of the mystery and the mystique of these varieties like the Maris Otters and the Barca and Golden Promise, not to say that those varieties were not well-deserving of their mystique. Dave touched on um, many times on the certain varieties are made to malt a certain way. I mean, they're, they have their malting path already laid out and therefore their, uh, the finished product is going to be a certain way. Uh, these varieties have a lot of good, uh, genomic details per se, and we, and bringing those into the fold, uh, when uh, it just expands the, I guess, repertoire that the breeders have, and we're going to look at the, like, why do these uh, Pilsner's malt in Germany have this protein structure, and why do... Um, why do these um, barley varieties in England are able to achieve such controlled modification and still get great flavor through the, through the curing process? Uh, it will definitely um, take everything we have with the varieties adjusted to the climate and environment and land in North America, but now find ways and find markers that could uh, achieve the brewing quality we want for craft, malt, craft brewers. At least that's the hope. Dave, do you want to talk a little bit about how, um, I, I, I believe, I could be wrong about this, that you guys do leverage some of these um, European varieties at proximity? Oh, we have, and, and that was our concept from the get-go, was to look at it and in saying... Why, you know, trying to pick a North American variety and, and an existing North American variety that may not have been bred entirely for craft uh you, you look at european varieties that are out there they've been, they've been bred for all malt beer for for centuries i mean that's that's really the protocol that they they, they have gone down in the breeding path that they've gone down in uh in the eu and in other areas there so at our onset we looked at it and said uh we want to service specifically the craft beer industry how do we well do that you know, shortening the pipeline was was a key to us to look at it and say, it's still with all with all the technology that we have out there with marker assisted selection and double haploids at, at Oregon State that that Pat Hayes is using. It's still a seven to nine year process. You know, it used to be a ten to twelve year process to get a new barley variety rolled out, and to say that's that's quite a big challenge too would be to move that needle from where existing North American varieties that were more geared toward uh, toward larger commercial beers, how do you get those traits to change? Uh, we didn't see that as, as happening anytime very soon. So our concept was to look at what existing deck 
of European style varieties were out there are true European barleys and how what would be the the best adapted varieties in each of the unique growing locations if you look at growing locations that we're dealing with uh couldn't be different than night and day you know colorado uh monte vista colorado is a is a high mountain desert you know we are, we're 7800 foot elevation and uh in a nice growing season but a relatively uh, short growing season as compared to the mid-atlantic and and you know there were the potential there is is a, is a completely different maritime climate early on in the year followed by some pretty some pretty rugged conditions uh during the during what would be traditionally the spring growing season and that's where we landed on looking at winter barleys uh, european winter barleys and what would be the best adapted in uh in those locations both agronomically and then through the malting process and ultimately with the goal of of passing that along to the uh to the craft brewers does that also include importing uh, European barley as well, or is it always planting European varieties domestically? Our, our focus is to plant everything domestically to go trying to car- carve out uh, miles out of the supply chain. Uh, yeah, granted, you can bring in European barley on, on large vessels and, and you can do it relatively economically, but uh, our preference obviously is to find you know, t- was to find the best variety that, that would work in the in those specific regions and literally early on in the process we were planting test strips or drill strips out there bringing those varieties in and then checking them for malt quality and ultimately passing them along to some of our brewing friends to do pilot uh, pilot brewing and testing for us so that that is truly our, our focus would be to to do everything domestically and to shorten up that supply chain Got it. That makes sense. Tim, I wanted to ask you, you got in, you talked earlier about sort of learning the language and, you know, all the, um, the adaptation that's occurred in recent years, um, from the brewer's perspective. Um, but I want to ask you also just how your malt specifications, your process and your relationships with maltsters has involved to improve the beers that you're responsible for. Well, the biggest thing is communication and making it constant. Yeah, we we constantly are involved in trials to, throughout the, in, the entire Canarchy, Canarchy Craft Brewery Collective. We, we have the benefit of having 10 different brewing facilities scattered across the country. So we uh, and because of that, we use multiple malt houses uh, for the reason of supply chain economics and that Dave discussed. But it's um, uh, the. Uh, in the end, we, we constantly have to draw up an, an actual report on, on how the barley is doing, especially when we're messing around with so many different varieties and also barley, um, barley types. We're using high color pale English style pale ales, we use a North American um, two row pale spec, like two to 2.3 level bond. We're using Pilsner malts extensively and knowing exactly what, to, what we're looking for and then how we can report that back to the maltster to get the conversation two-sided has been the biggest thing to evolve. And uh, we definitely try to engage that. I mean, we're working with almost every single maltster under the sun, some more than others. And um, the progress has been noticeable. We see it in brew house efficiency. We see it in extract yield throughout the entire um, production process. We see it in flavor. We see it in um, actual aesthetics. We see it in stability and such. So, But it has taken some time. 
anybody that's going to get involved in the malt and barley world has to be very long-sighted and short sight is, isn't really uh i don't want to say it doesn't pay off but it is uh, much more cloudy when you when you take a short sight can you give us any specific examples of that like maybe a specific use case where you actually said hey look we we need you know to improve this thing and it, and it worked out like a certain parameter well, the um, the for us the almost every single brew house in the in Canarchy is a, a single mash infusion style. We have very few mash cookers, and even so, the economics of every single production facility is uh, dependent upon quick turns. So we need a certain modification and uniformity in that kernel in order to uh, effectively have gelatinization and access to starch, saccharification, and then also uh, brewing quality to actually uh, louder and uh, collect um, and that extract as quickly as possible within reason, of course, because uh, we don't want to do that, do anything that affects flavor negatively. So um, over the last five years, one of the things that we've targeted very much is uniformity by communicating um, what we need. And then in looking at the, uh, the blends, the varietal blends, and the modification on each of those varieties, and then the complete COA blended, C, uh, the complete blended COA. Then we look at trends over time. And what we've looked at is things like viscosity, uh, protein, beta-glucans, friability, all these things collectively uh, and it, like, over a trend with certain varieties, we've been able to get into places with each maltster to get varietal blends and products that are conducive to our, um, our process. And you can say five years ago, the friability that we typically would get would be mid, mid to low 80s. Now we've noticed that low 90s is great especially for the varieties of Copeland and Metcalf and Genie and uh, um, Expedition and such and Synergy and such. And then we look at, we pair that variability with fine course difference because of our limited time for gelatinization. So we always are looking for as, you know, as close of a, a one as possible on fine course difference. And then we look at beta-glucan because we actually have a target. It's not just as low as you can go. If you go as low as you can go, you might over overdo it on viscosity, and then you affect flavor. But if you underdo it on beta glucan, the beta glucan is and uh, definitely going to affect our gelatinization and our sacrification, and therefore we're going to have much less or much more troublesome, inconsistent extract yields. So we brought all these parameters in line, and the, and our targets are very much with in line with uh, what AMBA and the BA set forward about seven years ago. Uh, but it has taken some time and communication on the part of the brewer between the brewer and the maltster to uh, to get to this point. 
And I'll, and, and I'll jump in there too and say t- t- Tim and his team aren't, aren't afraid to be brutally honest and we and we appreciate that <laughs> having, having you heard how knowledgeable team uh, Tim and his, his staff are on 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 multiple parameters and how it relates to their individual brewing processes so for us as a malster having that feedback is absolutely critical there and being able to, to establish those those guidelines and goalposts as I call them and have them be realistic you know Tim, Tim does work with us hand in hand here on on the reality of, of what you're dealing with you know you, you've got analytical parameters that are out there but uh, I, th- I think where they are going with it and where they have gone with it uh, is is very beneficial we've we've learned a lot in in, in working closely with uh, with the canarchy team I'm sure that's a, a much better experience than working with a customer that just doesn't you know doesn't understand what questions to ask and and you know what they want really Coming up. I looked at it and said, I think there are, are underutilized areas in the United States that would flourish using winter malting barley. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Support for this podcast is brought to you by ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, triclamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by Samba Hops is first in the new exclusive BSG Hop Solutions portfolio. Named for the overwhelming tropical dance explosion of its aroma, Samba's profile is dominated by juicy tropical fruit like pineapple and mango, plus tangerine and stone fruit. Samba is ideal for late and dry hopping juicy hazy IPAs or beers that need a big tropical fruit profile. Learn more about BSG Hop Solutions online and look for more BSG Hop Solutions releases coming soon. Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. Merry Christmas! District Michigan is holding a HACCP course at Bell's Brewery January 6th and 7th. District St. Louis meets January 16th. District Pittsburgh meets January 18th. District New England meets in Merrimack January 24th and 5th. The Ontario Technical Conference is January 29th through the 31st in Kingston. District St. Louis meets February 20th. District Northern California holds its technical conference February 27th and 28th in Sonoma County. One of our newest districts, District Great Plains, meets February 28th and 29th in Kansas City. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Back to the show. Back 
in July, the vice president and technical director of AMBA made a post to community.mba.com that I'm going to read. He wrote, The American Malting Barley Association, a.k.a. AMBA, publishes guidelines for malting barley breeders. These guidelines equip breeders with analytical targets for malting barley used by adjunct and all malt brewers and distillers. In June, the AMBA Board of Directors approved changes that the Technical Committee proposed for the guidelines for malting barley breeders. The new guidelines are posted here. Specifications for six-row malting varieties were discontinued since AMBA is no longer funding their development. Changes were also made that better clarifies the needs for brewers and distillers making all malt products. Let's focus on that last statement. I know there was a, there was sentiment that the changes uh, that Tim just referenced back in 2012 were a step in the right direction, but perhaps not enough. Could you comment on the 2019 updates and whether or not the current targets are on the money? Tim, I'm going to let you jump in. I'm from the brewing side first to say what you know. What what is the impression from the craft beer industry? I know you were actively involved in in helping set those guidelines, and as as was I as part of so the. So they uh, must be right. Oh, they have to be. Yeah, they're, they're right. End of question. Next question. Um, well, this has been a work in progress. The standards set forth in 2012 were um, definitely raised the bar, established the bar, if anything. And now the bar is being raised mainly because um, the entire the breeder to the maltster to the brewer were acknowledging what is possible and sustainable. The brewer, the craft brewer now is also a little bit more bold. And we're saying things like, you know what? The malt is still a little bit too hot, much less hot than before. Uh, having the, uh, not, no longer having enzymes, diastatic uh, powers of the, the 170, 180, and getting down to 110 to 120. Uh, over the last few years, the brewers have experienced these malts in the 100 to 120 DP range. And we've uh, through the extensive brewing and communication and banter, we feel very confident that going after the 100 to 120 range and, and such, even as low as 90, can actually be used in, in craft brewing and in all malt. But not only that, we've heard it echoed that we can achieve that. Protein levels have to be controlled, but I believe the extensiveness of where the expansiveness of how how and where barley is grown are given us new possibilities for protein levels and and such. We're also realizing that fan doesn't really really need to be as high as it needed to need to be. Uh, I believe it was two twenty to two thirty, like five to five as early as soon as five years ago. Now we realize that hey, anything over one seventy is really good, uh, but and anything under one ninety will definitely assist us for most of our brewing in terms of flavor stability, with still giving us the proper um, fermentation uh, nutrient necessities. Um, and but it has come down to the fact that it's changing now because we're raising the bar once again after evaluating that first step in the last seven years. You know, while we're since we've been talking about AMBA, Tim, do you want to comment on sort of the importance of what goes on there and maybe encourage more brewers to get involved rather than just trusting people like you to control their destinies? Well, I will say it, it does take resources. The um, the amount of information and understanding and discernment that you will glean from um, being part of AMBA 
is going to come down to how much you engage it. And, but you can engage it even as an associate member, but you just have to uh, find ways to ask more questions. Hey, what is this about? If you can't uh, supply the funds and the time to actually uh, be part of the technical committee or the board or some of the subcommittees, then as an associate member, engage the conversation and ask questions about what, what is being discussed. Maybe I can interject something and such, but it will come down to engagement. It, it's not just one of those things that you just pay the money and then a box shows up in your doorsteps with this beautiful gift of awesome malt and malt knowledge. Uh, the advancement of uh, the specs of uh, the, the craft malt profile has, come, has been because of engagement, but it doesn't have to be just a um, heavily committed technical board or board member. Uh, you can ask the questions and have the conversation. That's right. Get a seat at the table. All right. Um, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about uh, winter barley. So um, LCS Violetta was added to AMBA's recommended list of malting barley varieties this past summer, and it's one of two malting Czech varieties for AMBA's new Eastern Winter Malting Barley Nursery. I'm now brewing with Violetta exclusively. Proximity malts a lot of Violetta. Talk about why winter barleys are important. Winter winter malting barleys are, have been an integral part of uh, of the all malt brewing scene in, in Europe for years. Uh, they're just never with the consolidation of the uh, of the brewing industry in general and and the movements of of the large breweries that are out there. It never seemed to catch on as a concept. Uh, I looked at it and said I think there are, are underutilized areas in the United States that would flourish using winter malting barley. Uh, my experience with Violetta's in the, uh, in the Mid-Atlantic and looking at it, we looked at a number of different varieties out there and worked with them. A couple were very good. Uh, Violetta stood out. It's, it's challenging barley to, uh, you, you have to pay attention to it and listen to it as it's going through the process and, and work with it. But uh, on the flip side, it does well agronomically. And, and you, you look at that mid-Atlantic region and going, spring barley just would not work in, in, in many of these underutilized areas, including the mid-Atlantic. The conditions are just too rough during the traditional spring growing season to, to produce a quality spring malting barley so by planting that barley in the fall allowing it to overwinter uh, you get a number of benefits there a you get a value-added cover crop for your for the growing community that's out there that rather than planting you know reed canary grass or or something that they would just plow under here they get the benefits of, of having that act as a cover crop and when i say cover crop that means prevents soil erosion, prevents uh, pollutants from reaching uh, uh, the Chesapeake Bay, for instance, in the, uh, in the Delmarva Peninsula. They're a big issue there of, of nitrates and phosphates getting there. Barley is awesome at taking those up and utilizing them. Uh, barley, in and of itself, the winter barley, you know, if you can put rootlets down to six feet deep, it's a great soil conditioner. And the growers can use utilize a malting barley as a value-added cover crop rather than something that they would just simply toss out. In addition to that, 
that those growers are capable when they're harvesting barley on June 1, they're cutting barley and immediately a day or two later, they're out in the field planting short season soybeans. They can get a second crop in and that becomes very, very lucrative to the growers out there. So getting getting growers to accept and, and to plant malting barley varieties is uh, it's very beneficial. Well, and there's also, I mean, some other big benefits too is, uh, you know, th- the water usage as well as just the the overall concept of like diversifying our our malt supply right so it's not all grown in the same place if a big storm comes through and wipes it all out yeah and it's uh it's, it's one that i didn't get into was was a concern about climate change to go look at look at what we're experiencing here worldwide you know not just nationwide or regionally here we are definitely seeing some shifts in uh in climate and to look at that and go if we continue to to funnel malting barley into a smaller and smaller and smaller geographic location and we don't have the ability to uh to produce good quality malting barley in in other alternative regions out here i think that just exposes the entire industry to a lot more risk agreed there's a quality risk there Uh, at the same time i think this just comes down to a long-term sighted and if you bring up climate change that's the ultimate long-term sighted uh long-sighted thing you must have um uh, that, that that exists today and it definitely affects barley at the same time people don't realize that, you know, some of the advents and some of the uh the, uh, uh weather that occurred during climate change very much affect uh, barley quality so if, if there's abiotic stress due to climate change then protein levels go up and in all my years of watching barley clo- as closely as i do now high protein is the worst it just interferes everywhere. It interferes with brewer's efficiency and extract yield. It interferes with the, uh, the stability of the beer. Increases DP, increases fan, all that stuff, yeah. All these things we're trying to control, ultimately, if we're going to adhere to these specs, we have to use the all the land of this continent that we can possibly get our hands on. And we can't do that with the barley varieties that have been developed for the tiny little sliver that malting barley has been pushed up to since the mid-80s, ever since feed barley fell off. Now we're able to use different areas. We're able to, even, even down in Texas, uh, we have been working with uh, Blacklands Malt and um, even Texas uh, A&M, uh, I think Clark Neely down there. And this is all long-term stuff, but you know, it, it just goes to show that localization and barley supply can come from places that are even um, next door or down the street. But I know localization is definitely a big thing about with brewers that focus on sustainability. But if we're looking far out, we need to be able to uh, take advantage of every single growing area and any kind of growing window within those growing areas in order to move forward and maintain this. Otherwise, things will come to a head and we'll have these series of years of just inconsistency, inconsistent roller coaster rides as we try to find our way to um, winter varieties or even facultative varieties that work almost any time, which are, I believe, in Albuquerque last year, the Barley Improvement Conference. Uh, another great thing that AMBA puts on. Uh, first time I ever really uh, saw extensive information on that. and. It gives us hope that, hey, man, we, 
if we keep on it right now, collectively, we're going to be ahead of any kind of climate change, any kind of weather um, weather infrequencies and such to maintain this quality that we're striving for. I'll um I'll follow up with that too. And on one addition, there's there's a three letter acronym out there that will literally run put put shivers down a malt malt producer's spine, and that is PHS pre harvest sprout. It's one of the biggest issues in the past that we've dealt with in, 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 in North American spring malting barleys is rain at harvest, pre-harvest sprout and, and lack and loss of germination and uncontrolled germination. If I look back at my career, it seems like every three to four or five years, we're dealing with a PHS situation that's either, either local or sometimes even widespread regional. And, uh, as a maltster, if I can't get the malt, sprout and germinate uniformly or, or as we're working with it the the germination percentage is dropping off and dying to me that's that's the biggest fear that that, that we have out there and dave that's that's because we've bred all the dormancy out of north american barley right absolutely that was right where i was going to go and that's one of the wonderful benefits to working with these european varieties is that those existing european varieties that are out there have that natural dormancy built into them. Both both Genie that we're using the spring UK variety in Colorado and Violetta both have a have a dormancy factor in there. So, as you can imagine, uh, things sometimes get a little wet out on the uh, on the eastern shore when we're uh, when we're harvesting in June. But even with heavy heavy rain events right near the the end of harvest here, we have not seen that pre harvest sprout occur simply because that barley has that built in dormancy to it. So that is truly uh frosting on the cake when you're looking at a European style variety grown locally. Yeah. Skip more, more more credit more credit to the maltsters. The 2014 crop, yeah, I believe I mean everybody knew what PHS was, uh or, you know, pre-harvest germin in the field of germination uh, was that year. But more credit to the maltsters. I don't think it was nearly felt as much by the brewers and they don't understand how devastating it was. Like I say, high protein is high protein and that affects the brewers because it's definitely still works as malt, but PHS, it doesn't just doesn't work. And uh, brewers that year, because of the work of malsters didn't see it, but man, it really affected the entirely entire barley supply chain. Uh, we were, I think we were actually running a deficit that year or even two years in a row or two of three because of PHS and selection rates of what actually qualified as malting quality barley that year. It seems like it's an all or none. And it's, it, and like this is why the like people needed to be able to engage the maltsters and understand it's a farmer breeder farmer maltster brewer collaboration and and such in order to get get there but more credit to dave and his uh his colleagues in the malting world um phs definitely um was a devastating uh um event but man they definitely shouldered the load for the most part we uh, we we sure appreciate those kudos, Tim. It uh, took a few few years off my life. I think I got a few more gray hairs <laughs> after twenty fourteen crap year. Keith Armstrong was the closing speaker during the twenty nineteen Master Brewers Conference in Calgary. He talked about how we as an industry are telling the story of beer and how we could tell it better by focusing on ingredients such as barley. Comment on that. Are we headed in the right direction or what? Everybody is looking for 
something local, something done local and created local. And uh, I think by having the concepts of, of regional malt, as we're talking about right now, taking the barley varieties from Europe, but because of what they're needed, but growing them locally and regionally here, having that uh, having that moniker of uh, community, if you want to call it that. I always, I always call the craft beer industry the craft beer community because that, that's part of what we I think we've always been. And being able to have that capability out there to to source those all those materials from from local raw materials and, and regionally locally produced uh, uh, malts and and even hops and and other ingredients is to me real key. If we I think we can continue to focus on that, I think that uh, that sends a great message. Yeah. Now it's adaptation and evolution is is going to be a story. And brewers should engage it, and they can definitely engage it with barley more than any other crop. I don't know, definitely more than hops. Hops will have their little area, it seems, um, just by nature of the, the beast, but, the, but there's even evolution and adaptation there. But in barley, um, it's just a different, um, a, a very different beast, and it's because of that long-term approach and how it's affected and how it's, you know, part of a rotation and it's different in every single area. So are the brewers that are different in every single area. And if they're able to include their, their barley and if they're, uh, especially if they're able to do it on a local level, then um, they will have more of a story. If you look to just homogenizing it and making it just in, 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 industrial level thing now i will say big monsters will play a big game and a big role in advancing this but you can't look not everything can come from there let's look at things on as holistic a level as possible and adapt with the uh the climate adapt with the uh the cultural uh, developments and adapt with uh, how economy um develops and evolves over the next few years I'll, I'll throw one, I'll throw one more quote in there too. I forget who who made it. I'll probably be quoting Ron. I think it might have been Dan Carey, but he always said uh, some somebody had always said uh, barley is to beer what grapes are to wine, and, and I and I strongly believe in that. That was Dave Kusky and Tim Matthews here on the Master Brewers podcast. Check the show notes for links to the American Malting Barley Association's guidelines and how you can get involved in that process. Don't forget to ask your district officers if you can help them get those district presentations uploaded to the archive. And drop me a line if you think there's a presenter we should have on the show. All the links you need are in the show notes. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, and BSG. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. (laughs) 